It's time to roll up those joints, pack those bowls, and fire up those nails. Because you're listening to Blazing with Bobby Black on Cannabis Radio. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Blazing. I'm your host, Bobby Black, and a happy 4th of July to all of you. You know, uh, most people here in the U.S. celebrate the 4th with fireworks, but we celebrate them. We celebrate it with fire hash, right? <laughs> so that's pretty cool. Um, of course, uh, July 4th is, uh, the official name is Independence Day because it commemorates the end of the Revolutionary War and the official birth of our new nation that was independent from Great Britain. Uh, of course, America's biggest ally, their, their only real ally in the war for independence was France. So it's quite apropos that my guest today happens to be a Frenchman. Originally from Nice, France, now a resident of Richmond, California, today's guest is a cannabis resin expert, consultant, and educator who has traveled the world to study the ancient art of traditional hashish making. He's also a regular contributor to a number of publications, including Weed World, Skunk, Cannabis Now, The Gungeer, and the magazine that I'm currently an editor for, Greenleaf. He also teaches a series of in-depth hash making workshops around the country. I'm honored to welcome to the show... Uh, Mr. Frenchy Cannoli. Frenchy, thanks for blazing with us today. Uh, thank you so much for having me. And on such a day, it's so bomb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you're you're kicking off our big hash month celebration all month long. Uh, the month of July, we're going to be celebrating hash in all of its glorious forms with different guests. And you are the first guest to talk about the uh, the traditional methods. But I, if I start there, I'm going to have to tell you guys that you shouldn't really use the word hash. You should use the word concentrate. Hashish is a very old word that you can track up to the 7th century minimum. So it's like for old hashish in old school for me to see people calling extract hash, it's a little bit disturbing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Okay, I, I see your point. I see your point. You know, to me, hash was more of a, a an umbrella term, I guess. But really, concentrate is probably should be the more umbrella term, like you're saying. Hash is a more a more specific thing. It's a very very specific thing. Yeah. Well, you know, I have to say uh, that uh, as a young stoner, when I first began working at High Times back when I was like 21 years old, back in 1994, it was a long time ago. Um, uh, I had never, I'm from Brooklyn, New York, and I had, you know, never had access to hash. There was no hash around in, in, I mean, I'm sure some people had it, but I certainly didn't have access to it. And when I went to Amsterdam for the first time in 1994 for the seventh annual Cannabis Cup, it was like, oh my God, like Disney World. I couldn't believe <laughs> The amazing things. I remember going to the Bluebird for the first time, and 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 Frenchie, I'm sure you'll you'll back me up on this. The Bluebird had the most amazing hash selection I've ever seen. Two binders full of different hash, broken down by region. Oh my God, it was so amazing. I just it became my annual tradition every year when I would go to Amsterdam. One of my first stops would always be the Bluebird to pick up as much hash as I could for the rest of the trip, and of course to maybe take a little home with me too. <laughs> it's interesting how we have a different culture, how European culture, everything is about the resin. And, uh, and here, just because of the drug war, 
it has been basically forgotten and you went full time into the flower production. Yeah, it's true. And like I said, back then, I mean, obviously nowadays things are different. There's all types of concentrates available. But back then there were no concentrates in that I was aware of. Um, but that's how my love affair with hash started. It was in Amsterdam when I first got a hold of Temple Ball and Charas and Mazari Sharif. Uh, it was it was it opened up a whole different world to me. The flavors, the aromas, the earthiness, the it was just so delicious. Tell me a little about how your love affair with hash hashish started. Well, I um, when I was a teenager, when I smoked the first time, all my friends were <coughs> sorry, all my friends were first generation Lebanese, Persian, Moroccan. So that as soon as I started to smoke, I was introduced to the family. And so you already reach an, another level of, uh, of knowledge of the resin. So I was really straight up deeply involved into the pressing, the really, the resin itself, how it can change when you manipulate it. Mostly to tell the truth was, to be able to make something look much better than it actually was. <laughs> <laughs> to say it nicely. But from this, you learn you learn what resin is. You need to really manipulate. And all my childhood, I always was really deeply in love with the Persian Empire traveling has always been something that was really deep-rooted in me. So that when I started to smoke ash, I, I could experience through my senses the smell and taste of those places. And I was 17. I, was, I came quite late into it, but in, uh, in the 70s, it was very underground, uh, the smoking in, uh, in Europe. And, you know, when you feel you feel uncomfortable doing something because, you know, it's very illegal and there is a lot of pressure of making you feel that you do something really, really wrong. And I never went like you guys into fighting for my right. I escaped in producing country where even if it was illegal, the culture was there. There is like, uh, you have a, a sense of belonging in a culture that accepts cannabis as part of uh, some type of their religious belief. Right. It's sort of like a subculture or even a counterculture, sort of like the U.S. counterculture, but different. Different, yes, in a, in a certain way, because it goes back uh, in time in India. It goes for thousands of years. In uh, in places like uh, Morocco, it's not as old, but anything around uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, uh, Turkey, it goes deep in time. And the the culture around it is uh, is underground, but there is an, an acceptance of it at the same time. So, uh, it's a little difficult to, uh, to explain, but... Um, to be in a culture like that made me feel like I uh, I wasn't really doing something that was so bad and ugly, like they say on TV, quoi, basically. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. when you're a kid, it's like you, even with you're a rebel, 
it makes you unconsciously feel guilty in a certain way. Yeah, and, and there's that forbidden fruit allure of it as well uh, that makes exactly. people maybe want to try it even more because it's because it's not allowed. Um, so you, you mentioned uh, briefly about how you love to travel and some of the travels. Tell us about some of the, I know you've been to most of the, it seems like most of the major hash making centers in the old world. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, Morocco, uh, Af- uh, India, have you been to Afghanistan or, or Nepal? Uh, Nepal, Pakistan, Afghanistan. Actually, I was stopped at the, uh, on the Khyber Pass. The Afghan war had just started a few months back, it was in 1980. So they didn't let me in. But I met very good friend with some uh, re- Afghan refugee who uh, I stay friend for a long time. They stay in India before they in, uh, in New Delhi in India before they could migrate to uh, Australia and, uh, and Germany. And I learned a lot from, uh, from these two guys. And how do you, how do you, when you're entering a strange country like that, how do you seek out and connect with your fellow cannabis enthusiasts? How would one go about doing that? You would pick up the, first you pick up the producing countries, then you pick up the producing place in the producing country. Then you go as deep as you can there. And, uh, and then I don't, I don't know. It's (laughs) like, I, there is different type of people going to those places. There is a guy who's gonna buy quantities, a businessman is gonna stay uh, a day or two maximum, he buy quantity. Then there is a, uh, the second type where they kind of buy quantity, but they're picky on their quality. So the guy is gonna choose his pollen and press it itself, himself, instead of buying chunk of ash pressed. And then there is the guy like me, what I want is not for sale. So to be able to get what I want, I needed to do it myself. And in that case, you stay weeks and months living alongside those people. And it's like, I guess it's the love of the plant, the love of the resin. Like when they see that you're cra- that crazy to come <laughs> there. And just because that you smoke the highest quality, you're ready to go through some serious adversity. They they accept you. I guess I don't I don't know. It's like I never really thought about it while I was traveling because you know what I mean. It's like when you're young, you don't realize how much is given to you. It's just like uh, life is a gift and uh, it's owned to you in a certain way. And later on, it's like thinking about it. It's like, yeah, sharing that love for the plant. I, and I love this culture also. So when you love a culture, a place, and you have that deep relation at that most, of that most intimate things in your life, it creates a bond where even if you have a half a dozen words in common, uh, you become like a friend forever. I can go back to this country and... Uh, be the same with those families. They will never forget me. I will never forget them. That's that's amazing. That's sort of like what I like to refer to as the stonerhood. It's like the brotherhood <laughs> of stoners around the world. Yeah, that yeah, that once yeah. you're part of it, you know that you you're you're bonded by your love of the plant and of the and of mm. the resin, of course. Yeah, it goes deep. 
Yeah. Uh, speaking of going deep, let's talk a little about the history, because I know that you you like to use the word hashishin. Uh, you refer to yourself as a hashishin and, and other traditional hash, ma- hash makers as hashishin. Um, I know the term hashishin is, was originally used to describe not necessarily hash makers, but a group of Arabic assassins who used to ingest hashish before going off on their missions. As a matter of fact, the word assassin is believed to be derived from the word hashishin. So tell us a little about that history and how you appropriated that that moniker. It's an interpretation of the Western world, of the word hashishia, which means eater of hashish. And the eater of hashish were fakirs, the Sufi, the dervish dancer, like really the underground little rebel... uh, the side uh, of the uh, of the society, and the old man of the mountain truly lived, and that guy to be able to hold his uh, his kingdom without an army, he created the first terrorism terrorist cell, and uh, all the story about the Garden of Eden and the paradise and stuff cannot be proved. The mountain where he lived, there is nothing really growing. He most certainly have brainwashed his, uh, his disciple with some type of, uh, of psychoactive plant, but there is nothing really solid about uh, Ashish. That's Marco Polo and uh, the crusader coming back from the first crusade that talk about it because that group of assassins actually killed one of the main uh, regents of, of Jerusalem during the crusade. And he was feared the war. Even, the, even uh, Aladdin, like the, the biggest stratege, the, the Napoleon of the, of the Muslim emperor, feared him so much that he had a deal uh, with him that he would never invade his territory. But the word Ashishin, it's, uh, it's eater of Ashish, it's Ashishia, and that as far as I could track the word Ashish, seventh century, just after the death of, um, of Mohammed. Oh, see, this is interesting because I thought it was pretty much established that that Hassani Sabah, who was the head of the supposed head of the Hashishin, that mm-hmm. that that this that that it was determined that this did kind of come from that. I mean, and like you said, he supposedly had a castle up in the uh, in the mountains in Iran, in Persia at the time, yeah, in Persia, and uh, yeah. where he would create this uh, garden of delights, and he would get them like super high on hash, and then when they would wake up, there would be all these young women, you know, pleasuring them. And he would say like, this is what you will get if you, if you serve me or whatever. And yeah, I kept, like I can't a help- test of paradise. <laughs> and I couldn't, uh, I couldn't help but think that maybe that was where the idea of the virgins waiting in paradise for, for, for martyrs comes from. No, you know? that's, that's much older. Uh, he yeah. was a Sufi. All Sufi was a subgroup. When, uh, when Mohammed died, they, they, uh, they were a, a much mini subgroup that were created. And that's still fighting today, actually. One of the biggest problems we have uh, in our time. And it started in the seventh century, and the Sunni were one of that uh, group that separated from the main belief of uh, of Mohammed. Wow. 
Well, let's talk also about some of the other cultures, because uh, I know uh, Moroccan uh, hash culture is very different than that. And uh, they they have uh, I happen to have I was gifted a Sebsi pipe uh, mm. not long ago, which uh, which I love. And uh, that's a traditional Moroccan cannabis pipe uh, made out of wood and clay. Uh, I'm sure you probably own quite a few of them, right? I, I have a few bowl actually. Yes, I I, I use them to show uh, to my uh, to my uh, students because you don't smoke ash with those uh, pipe. You smoke kif, the oh, real only... word kif, because the word kif also that you use actually can be traced to the seventh century, and it's a mix of flowers, uh, the best part of the flower with a tiny bit of black tobacco. Wow. Ashish so, is, is very new in the culture of Morocco. It started in the 60s with the Epitrail. So they smoked keef before that? They just they smoked keef before that. It, like they, they, they have a history of uh, cannabis use because the Muslim uh, empire went from Turkey to, uh, to Spain. But they, they, they never had a, a Ashish culture like uh, Lebanon uh, or Afghanistan. Oh, interesting. And what about India? What, what's your experience with India been as far as their hash tradition? India was magic because before going to India, I was Ashishin. Ashishin for, for uh, an Afghan uh, person is a, is a master ashmaker in a certain way, like uh, somebody that dedicates his life to raisin. It, it, like, there is no real translation, but it's like it's a, it's a word that, uh, that you wear, that you, uh, you own with pride. And it's on, uh, owned most often in the same family, generation after generation. So, wow. and those people, when you are a Shishin, you work with dry material. So for the longest time in my life, I never was really connected with the plant, only the resin on dry bundle of, of plants. When I came to India in, uh, in the land of Charas, you literally stick live resin on your hand at the peak of harvest. And that was the first time that I had a very intimate relation with the flower. I didn't still understand and truly see the flower for what it was, because all my education was resin. But that's the first time where I truly had a contact with a live plant, and it touched me really deeply. It's like it's an experience that is truly magical. Wow. So India, they use live, but not dried, you're saying? No, it's all live resin. You, uh, when, when the plant is at its peak of maturity, you take away the, the, the fan leaves and you literally caress the plant. Wow. And after uh, and sl- I, plant after plant, the, the resin slowly, slowly uh, layer up on, uh, in, in the palm and on the finger on your hand especially in the groove of your hand. And when you have uh, enough in your hand, you just unstick it and you start again. 
Amazing. You know, uh, that's uh, you know, we're starting to get into the techniques now. And uh, before we do, I want to take a quick break. Uh, we've been getting in talking about the history of hash culture around the world. And uh, when we come back from this break, we're going to get really into the techniques and, and the different methods of doing it. So uh, please stick around. We'll be right back with more from Frenchie Cannoli here on Blazin. You're listening to Blazin with Bobby Black on Cannabis Radio. This is Bobby Black, host of Blazin, here to talk to you about 420 Science. I've known Matt and Gary from 420 Science for over a decade. We've spent a lot of time together at the Cannabis Cups in Amsterdam, the Doobie Awards in their hometown of Austin. They were even at my wedding. And I've always admired their integrity and how they've built 420 Science from the ground up to become the most trusted online head shop. Visit 420science.com slash podcast for an exclusive deal on pipes and more from genuine people who put their customers first. That's 420science.com slash podcast. The smoke is rising, and the next crop of podcasts devoted to cannabis providers and enthusiasts are ready to be harvested. Welcome to the Cannabis Radio Network, founded by respected rainmakers who have been producing award-winning podcasts for over a decade. Industry headlines, business updates, medical reports, marketing, and e-commerce education rolled up perfectly for your consumption. Let's grow together. The Cannabis Radio Network. CannabisRadio.com. Are you disturbed by the prescription medication commercials on television and their endless list of side effects? They go on and on and you end up having to take multiple pills to counteract the problems caused by the first pill. It never ends. Have you looked into CBD as a more natural option? At Saturn Ranch, we produce all-natural CBD topicals and THC-infused edibles. Premium lab-tested hemp-derived CBD is the most important ingredient in our products. From topical bombs, salt scrubs, bath-soaking salts to tinctures and edibles, you're sure to find something to help. Family-owned and operated, we at Saturn Ranch believe in and use our products daily. Don't put anything on your body that you wouldn't put in your body. SaturnRanch.com All right, and we are back. Uh, we're on the special Hash Month edition of Blazin. My guest today is a world-renowned uh, traditional hash expert, Mr. Frenchy Cannoli. How you doing, Frenchy? Getting high over there, I hope. Thank you. Oh yes, I mean the mountain. <laughs> <laughs> I mean Mandora. <laughs> so before before the break, we we had talked a lot about the the history of hash culture, and we started to talk a little about the methodology, specifically in India, which was a which uses the live resin as opposed to the dried. Um, let's talk a little about the methods. Uh, you know, there's a there's several different methods from different regions that date back thousands of years. Um, Tell us about the different methods and, and which methods you prefer to use. But, you know, since my education was for 18 years, I basically traveled. I took my retirement up front when I was 18 years old, just to be safe. Mm-hmm. And everyone, uh, every year, I would spend a few months in a, in a producing place to make my smoke for the year, basically. So every time I would not go really to those places to learn per se, but because you use the tool and you work alongside those people, you pick up their, uh, their technique. But at the end of the day, it's dry sieving. Where you sieve, you separate resin through perforation and your separation is done by size. You separate contaminants and resin by size. 
where it become where it become really something different and it's when you press that resin and you edge it so that you literally transform something that the plant is given you into another product another dimension of what the resin is actually if you see what i mean yeah so so the so this obviously that's your main specialty dry sift or dry sieve uh hash um so when you're dealing with the different screens the different micron levels um i don't oh (laughs) how do you well okay i do i i i do full spectrum when you separate per micron your 70 to 90 your 45 to 73 your 90 to 120 it's a little slice of a whole spectrum of terpen and cannabinoid. I, I prefer the wall to the part. And for that, I'm ready to give on a melt. Everybody, I mean, the wall industry here is totally focused on a melt only, which is fine because the melt express how much resin is formed inside the resin head, how ripe that resin head is. But then, how much cannabinoid is in that resin head? How much terp is in that resin head? Makes a huge difference at the end of the day. And that's talking only about the non-tangible. Then you have the actual degustation part of the experience, because after all, it's all about our senses. It's all a degustation when, uh, when you smoke. Sure. That's really, truly where your quality stands. How does it smell before you smoke? How does it take your mouth when you smoke? How intense it is? How long it stays in your mouth? You know what I mean? It's like it's uh, it's like wine or liquor or when something when you have such a diversity of, of terpene profile at, at, in your hand here, which is for me something that is. Uh, the nirvana of the hashishin, uh, it's like it's, you need to really st- uh, put your quality on, uh, on all the dimensions that quality uh, resin represents, or quality flower for that matter. Sure. And you know, it's funny you mentioned the like a wine because uh, I've often used a metaphor to people that I say, well, smoking weed is like drinking beer and smoking hash is like drinking wine because there's more of a – with beer, you kind of drink it quick. You chug it down, you know, but it's refreshing and it gets you drunk, but it's more – you know, with wine, you're really no one's chugging wine. You're sipping it. You're really savoring it. And I, I've always felt that that was a, the kind of comparison that I would tell people when I why I like hash so much. The the comparison goes deep. And what you just say, what what you just express, it's a wine industry that created that image in the mid 18th century after 13,000 years of mass production, black market, using any type of product to cut the wine so that it stays palatable uh, longer than it would normally, they decided to create quality because they had competition on the market. Coffee, chocolate, tea were uh, appearing. So 
they put behind 13,000 years and they created the wine industry that you know today. They created the hierarchy of, of, uh, of wine in Bordeaux that stand as a, as a standard of quality. Every wine that are created uh, have to look to that standard to be classified. And in a history book, there is literally a blueprint for us to follow how California can become the Bordeaux and the France of the cannabis industry. Because there is, to the, to, to the letter, to the baron of tea, or I'm not sure how you say that in English, it suits the cannabis industry like a custom-made... Uh, <laughs> it's like a glove, the, yeah. <laughs> The only difference is the plant is prohibited. Wine wasn't. The, the, the country, the whole French government was behind that transformation. All right. the chateaux that you know about, they were built in, 19, uh, in the early 1900s. And I know that you're fighting for, you're, you're part of the um, people who are leading that charge, I think, in the Emerald Triangle to get that sort of um, registered desti- designation of origin or uh, as they yeah, call it, the AOC. Yeah, yeah. Um, to get that uh, kind of standard established so that you can have quality classifications and and certify that something actually did come from the region that it and it was grown a certain way that adheres to those standards, which is, I think, if you, if we can make that happen in this industry would be would be huge. It would be amazing. I mean, it's like it's it for me, it's so obvious, but I have a French education. I'm really deep involved into the industry and I have traveled the world in producing country. So my vision of things is very, very different. And for me, it hurts me that people don't see it because the, the world market is coming very soon. The only thing that make the USA stand in a world market is the quality of their farmer, of their genetic, and how precious the land is, especially here in California on all that uh, Western coast. This is the legacy that those uh, people in France, in Bordeaux, had in their hand to create the market of the future. So as a ash maker, if I, want, if I was a, a winemaker and you ask me, would you rather make champagne in champagne or bubbly in Chile? Uh, well, I think I would choose champagne without much hesitation. <laughs> and that's what we could have. So even the big investors, the big boy that going to rule more or less for market, they don't have much choice. They cannot grow, technically speaking. From what I see, everybody is using pesticide because to grow organically a plant that stand into, into because of its quality, the person that takes care of that dedicate its life to it. Those people are called farmers. There is a huge difference between a farmer and a grower. And yeah. if we want to compete at a world, uh, at, uh, on the world trade, we cannot compete on, on quantity against countries that have been making quantity for centuries. True. So even the big boy, really, if they want to survive the future of the cannabis industry worldwide, they better 
hook up with the only powers that they have to create a legacy and an empire, that the small farmer of the Emerald Triangle, the genetic they have. If they don't protect them, those people, they're going to leave. So it's already not really smart to kill the goose that lays the golden egg. But <laughs> if you starve the goose that lays the golden egg and that goose go to the neighbor and bring the golden egg to the neighbor, then you're really, really stupid. And you have really, <laughs> really, really missed the train. Yeah. I, I agree. I agree. Uh, and I also agree with you, uh, what you said earlier about the full spectrum hash, as opposed to differentiating the different uh, micron levels. Um, I, that was always one of my complaints uh, to compare it to other concentrates. When when the shatters came out, um, people would say, oh, they're so pure and we've gotten rid of the fats and the lipids and all this other stuff. And I'd say, yeah, it's pure, but you you've taken out a lot of what I liked about it. You know, you've taken out uh, terpenes. You've taken out the cre the creamy consistency that makes it more enjoyable for me to smoke. So, uh, you know, purity versus a whole, you know, holistic, you know, the it, holistic it, no, getting the whole. It's not holistic. There is like all the magic it's created inside that resin head. Everything that is inside that resin head is creating the magic. If you take this out of the equation and you take only the resin, it's not the same. It's very much like eating an apple and drinking the juice of an apple. The juice is still the apple, but you don't have that entourage effect, that wholeness, that nourishment of the wholeness of the fruit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So what's what's the difference between when you use the water or ice to agitate the heads to get them to come off or using the dry sift method? What what why is one superior to the other or what is, what differentiates the two? So I have a huge argument about it because people call that process extraction. And in fact, it's still sieving. We just use water as a medium to agitate and to hold the resin head in its own body. And this is the only evolution in, in sieving uh, cannabis resin since the game was invented maybe tens of thousands of years ago. So when you dry sieve, first you work with brittle material. So every time you touch, you create contaminants. And the, the quality of, uh, of the product is defined mostly by the cleanliness of the resin. That means that your first pass on your seed, you hardly touch your, uh, your, uh, your bud, your trim. You just make them jump and you, uh, you make vibration. The second time, you're going to break the bud. The third time, you're going to start caressing them over the sieve. And every time you collect, every time it's a different grade. And also, when you sieve, you agitate to break the head from the stock and you separate on the sieve by size so that the resin head goes through the sieve. Yeah. And just, it, it's two process in one methodology, if you see what I mean. When you yeah. use water, not only you don't work with the brittle material anymore, you rehydrate it, so that means you cannot bust it except if you crunch it between uh, ice cube. And most of all, you have two separate process. 
you can agitate in a machine and you see in a bag. The bag is not just a containment a bag to collect your resin. That's actually where you do the job. You the second process where you clean forcefully and separate whatever is on that screen per size. You know what I mean? And that's the bigger. That's a, for somebody who was doing dry sieve all his life. This is this is an amazing gift because now I can fine tune just two processes. It's not one. It's they're not together anymore. Yeah. Would you say that? Would you say that using uh, ice water separation is it makes it a little easier? Is dry oh, sifting it, harder? It, it's much easier. You collect everything in a much cleaner, cleaner way. The big argument that I actually have it's do you lose more terpen using water than when you dry sieve? And most people tell me that you uh, lose a lot more when you do water, but I would like to be proven wrong by scientific lab tests, comparative tests. Because where if the terpene are formed inside the resin head, like I have been talking, and only precursor of terpene goes up the stock of the of the resin head. Yeah, are stored under the resin head, transform into terpene before they actually go inside the resin head. To be able to lose the terpene, you need to break the membrane. If you break the membrane in the water, where you have less chance actually to break membrane when they are rehydrated than when it's dry. Uh, the only leaking point would be where the head breaks from the stock. I don't really mind those, uh, those terpenes. They're not the real one. They're still precursors. <laughs> That's my argument. Now, I, uh, now we need to do lab test, uh, trim for trim, and see uh, what's up. Yeah. And then as far as material, I mean, most of the people I know who make hash, they do it with trim. They do it with leaf material. Is there an advantage to doing it with whole plant and buds, or do you use trim as well? Uh, I use trim as well, but more than the material, it's how ripe the resin head is on the material. I don't care a whole plant that has been harvested two weeks early. I rather have... Uh, Trims that I need to clean up a little bit that have been harvested at the peak of harvest. It's uh, I can tell you to the day if you are harvested earlier or uh, or later, because <laughs> because it's so apparent into the resin that I collect. The resin is a is the whole life of the plant in my hand. It's like it's like a book. I can say I can tell a lot from it. As much as you guys can recognize flower, the difference between flower and uh, your, it's easy for you to pick up the genetic and stuff. Me, it's the same with the resin, basically. Wow, I, I bet. <laughs> that's amazing. And that's, that's, that's why you're here on, that's why I wanted you on my show for the first episode, <laughs> episode of Hash Mud, my friend. Um, I so, you because it was the 4th of July. Yeah, oh, no, that's, that was just a happy coincidence. But, um, you know, uh, 
and then of course uh, obviously after you collect uh after you uh get all the all the resin all the trichomes off then of course is the uh the stage that you uh you are known for also which you mentioned earlier is pressing um and i think that's something that doesn't that gets obviously completely lost in the types of concentrates that are more modern. Um, tell me a little, tell us a little about pressing, uh, the, what, what is the advantage of pressing the hash after, after you collect it? So when you press the hash, if you look at resin, most people here microplane or separate the resin head and keep the resin in the fridge to keep them uh, loose. And as soon as you take the resin, the, the container in your hand, if it's really good resin, it's going to melt together in a mass. And the color is going to change. It's not going to be white anymore. So it, it really shows that not, not pressing, not letting the resin become a mass, it's literally working against nature. And then you have thousands of years of tradition where in every producing country in the world, people are pressing their resin before they smoke. There is no methodology that can stand thousands of years and not be on point. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, I, 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 it's like, don't, then it's like when I came in the state and I started to look for the science behind the tradition that I learned to be able to prove that what I saw with my eyes were not uh, hallucination. I discovered de decarboxylation. So there is a CO2 molecule attached to the cannabinoid, and there is a curtain of gas before your blood uh, system in your lung. And that pocket of gas doesn't let that CO2 molecule go through. So if you don't decarb, if you don't lose that CO2 uh, molecule, you have much less cannabinoids that are going to go through your blood system. Right. I, then, think, I think I remember reading, uh, it might have even been, I think, in one of your writings that uh, something like 70% of this THC is destroyed during combustion, like for flowers. Is that true? Uh, uh, something like that. And that's the data that I picked up in... Uh, online in uh, on research and so we lose a lot uh -huh. because it's so hot it's uh, decarbing decarbing you need to do that somewhere around 180 uh, 200 for uh, one hour to decarb so when you put that on a nail at seven eight hundred eh, maybe you decarb a bit but that's not optimum at all right right and also the most amazing like lately there is a uh, last year some a bunch of france actually from my hometown, as coincidence goes, made a study of, uh, of us and uh, act the actual plant dry and live. And they found out that in traditional ashes method, you create 50 plus compounds that do not ex exist literally in a plant kingdom, that have no name, it's only number, and that are so rare that... Uh, they have to be produced in uh, in lab, and wow. one comes so often that they want to call it uh, ashishin, because it's uh, the original terpene. It's uh, B. Myrcene, which is pretty common uh, in many strains. Right. So it's like 
I, at the beginning, when I when I was pressing, I thought I would I was locking down the terpene into that mass of resin that I could edge for years that would become better than the day I pressed it. And to, to discover that I'm literally creating magic made it even more uh, special. It's like now I, uh, I have even more pleasure to pressing than <laughs> I, I ever had just because I know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you use, a, you use a specific method for your pressing I've seen uh, online. It's the bottle, uh, the, the warm water bottle method. Um, but, you know, a lot of the traditional hashes, like you said earlier, were made hand-pressed. Um, and exactly. But what about the this, hand oils getting into the hash? Isn't that a form of contamination? Wouldn't people be worried about that? I mean, yeah, you European and you're in the States. Yeah. Uh, but you do, you have very little oil and you do it with dry hand. Like you cannot make charas in India with the oily hand. You, the resin wouldn't stick, stick to your hand. You cannot have oily hand or you cannot sweat and you cannot have oily hand if you uh, want to make good charas. Because the resin doesn't stick to you. Wow. When when you press, it's really dry. And uh, the, the the technique I, I used like that water bottle, it's basically trying to mimic and pressing as much as I could and giving me the maximum ability to control the temperature and the time and, uh, and the pressure as I, I apply. Interesting. Oh, you know, and the one thing that we uh, haven't reached covered yet is about uh, curing and aging. Now, what what was, what is the difference between curing and aging, and how long is ideal for for each? Curing it's before you collect the resin. You cure on a plant. Every producing country again in the world cures their resin on a plant three to nine months. The only people who don't do that are Afghan people and not every valley, if I understood well. And so they collect, they sieve the resin as soon as the plant is dry, but they put that resin in um, sheepskin, goatskin, and they uh, put them in kind of underground uh, chamber for months. That's curing. Once you press or once you collect, once you press, it's, there is a transformation that happens for the first week, and then you go into aging. It's not curing anymore. And for people who think that they cure in a fridge, you don't cure in a fridge. You're <laughs> trying to protect and preserve something in a fridge. You don't cure. There is nothing that can happen in a fridge. That's the whole point of putting something in a fridge in the first place. Right. But so what, what, what's the advantage of the aging and the curing? I mean, what is the hash, what is the, the hashish gain by, by that time period as so opposed to the fresh? Cu curing your flower, when, when you dry, the live resin gives you like somewhere around 200 to 300 terp. When, uh, when, you, when you dry and cure your flower, you lose 80% of that. But during the curing process, there is... Um, a process of polymerization, a bonding of the polymer that transforms the terpene profile. That was uh, a cured flower doesn't smell like a just dry flower and not at all like the, the live flower. And in that time, the live, the, the live flower gives you a terpene profile that is unique and with all the terpene. And then on the other hand, you have 
the other peak of, uh, of quality, the curing after three to nine months. And in between, when the, the flowers are just dry, the quality goes down. And the terpene profile is like, neither one, neither the other. And I had that experience with the Pinot Noir of Leo, which was really unique because the cured resin ash tastes like chocolate. The live resin ash tastes like a field of flower with some serious lavender into it. Mm. And the just uh, dried resin non-cure was like, Something in between, but with no power. Even the, the quality of the resin seems to degrade uh, a little bit. Wow. Yeah, well, there, is know, in, there is a lot in a curing. Like, yeah, a lot of people, like the, a lot of connoisseurs, flower connoisseurs, they cure their flower. Aficionados, yeah. they cure their flower before it goes on the market. There is no way. They, or they have to be a little desperate after the season to put some flower <laughs> like that. Uh, sure, sure. No, I, I, I'm aware of the curing process for flowers. I just wasn't sure how it applied specifically. It applied to big the, deal the hash. on yeah, the yeah. resin. Uh, yeah, it's all but, together. Uh, I mean, you have to understand that the resin is the final expression of that plant with the seed that she doesn't produce when she's a sensei, a, a sensei mia. So like every, all the power, everything is there. And I'm lucky enough to be the one collecting it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, I could talk to you for hours, but unfortunately we don't have uh, hours on the show to talk. Uh, we're going to take one more break. Uh, we'll be right back uh, to wrap things up with uh, our guest this week, Frenchie Cannoli here on Blazin. Stay tuned. You're listening to Blazin with Bobby Black on Cannabis Radio. Want to grow your own weed but not sure where to get the seed? Go to bcbuddepot.com. For nearly 15 years, BC Bud Depot has been building one of the world's most comprehensive seed banks, offering over 50 strains of top-quality cannabis to suit every grower's needs, including multiple award-winning strains like Godbud, The Perps, BC Blueberry, Girl Scout Cookies, and more. In fact, BC Bud Depot's genetics have won over 30 different cannabis awards over the past decade. So you know you're dealing with a recognized industry leader that will deliver you some of the most potent, flavorful flowers on the planet. They ship worldwide, offering fast, discreet delivery at reasonable prices. All online orders are processed within 48 hours and are packaged and mailed with the utmost stealth and safety in mind. And if for some reason your order gets lost, damaged, or confiscated, BC Bud Depot will resend it at no extra charge guaranteeing that every customer receives what they paid for. Whether you're looking for indica or sativa, indoor or outdoor, feminized or auto-flowering, BC Bud Depot has the seeds you need at a price you can handle. But don't take my word for it. Check out their extensive library of award-winning genetics for yourself at bcbuddepot.com and type in promo code BLAZIN420 at checkout to receive 10% off your order. BC Bud Depot home of cannabis champions since 2002. Please check your local, state, and national laws before ordering. Are you disturbed by the prescription medication commercials on television and their endless list of side effects? They go on and on and you end up having to take multiple pills to counteract the problems caused by the first pill. It never ends. Have you looked into CBD as a more natural option? 
At Saturn Ranch, we produce all-natural CBD topicals and THC-infused edibles. Premium lab-tested hemp-derived CBD is the most important ingredient in our products. From topical bombs, salt scrubs, bath-soaking salts to tinctures and edibles, you're sure to find something to help. Family-owned and operated, we at Saturn Ranch believe in and use our products daily. Don't put anything on your body that you wouldn't put in your body. SaturnRanch.com The next generation of vaporizers has arrived. Vuber vaporizers are blazing the way with unparalleled technology for oil, concentrate, or dry flower pens. Providing unsurpassed customer service and expert craftsmanship, Vuber vaporizers use cutting-edge technology, providing a power-packed, smoother vapor with a lifetime guarantee. Experience vaporizing the way it was meant to be. The Vuber way. All right, and we are back once again here on Blazin. Uh, we don't have too much time left, Frenchie, but uh, we can, like I said, we could be talking for hours, and I would never get tired of listening to you uh, <laughs> talk about hash. And and uh, but we do have to wrap things up. So uh, I I just would love to know, um, do you, with all the amazing places you've been and all the hashes you've made and tried, uh, do you have any particular favorites? Are there any that really stand out in your mind? Uh, any particular uh, types? Oh yes, oh yes. The wild cannabis charas that I made at 10,000 feet in the Himalayan mountain in the Parvati Valley. There is nothing quite like wild cannabis that grows at 10,000 feet and has been growing there for who knows how many millennium. Because in, in Indian mythology, cannabis was born in those mountains in the drop of the of elixir of life. So it's like the, the power of the place, the power of those plants. Yeah. Uh, there is nothing that could compare ever with something like that. Wow. I can't even imagine how much that would go for on the market if it were available. You know, as someone who, who has been smoking hash my whole life and who has worked for high times in the past for over 20 years, even I never get access to something like that. No. And uh, it's pretty. You have to go there. Yeah. It's, it's pretty. Let's uh, go. <laughs> oh, I, is that an invitation? <laughs> Man, I, uh, I'm really, you know, when, when you stay in a place like this, that you really know the resin, but you have no idea whatsoever of the genetic. You don't know now how stupid I feel being educated by the best breeder and uh, and grower in the memorial triangle. I had treasure in my hand. I had no idea. Wow. So I'm really planning to uh, to go back there and go back with a bunch of people that I could blow their mind out. It would be my pleasure <laughs> and you would be really welcome to the group. Huh? Oh, wow. Well, I might just have to do that. Maybe I could do a nice big feature story about it. Uh, that would be amazing. Uh, I'd love That's to. It. It's all about sharing. It's like for people to understand what's, what's going on in the rest of the planet, because there is so much that we should do together. Yeah. You know, the closest I would say I've ever come to something as amazing as that is just even attending the Legends of Hash Party in Amsterdam, which I'm sure you're aware of. But yeah. uh, the Legends of Hash Party... Uh, was something that was so that special and amazing yeah. and unique. Yeah, that uh, it's very. It will never be duplicated. It was just uh, an amazing experience, um, and actually, I got to try. I, yep. Actually, this year I went to Spanabis and I had 
un chunk of age that I aged over a year specifically for, uh, for that dinner and they canceled it. Wow. Uh, yeah. yeah, Bubble Man couldn't make it this year. Oh, okay. Well, he he uh, he's going to be my guest later in the month uh, for Hash Month uh, as well. But uh, I I got to attend the Legends party a few a few years while working at High Times, and it was one of the highlights of my of my cannabis life. I will tell you, um, and I I hope that I have the opportunity to to, to attend one again in the future. Um, I got to try the most amazing things there. It's really really. I remarkable. imagine. I imagine it's like that. Bring really the best out of out of the people when you have such a. A panel of judges, that's what competition needs, such a panel of judges that hold the respect of the whole industry, then it is meaningful. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Frenchie, well, we're just about out of time. Before we go, uh, let people know, uh, you know, where they can find you online and uh, when you're going to be doing some more uh, some more classes. Ben, FrenchieCanoli.com or uh, at FrenchieCanoli on Instagram. My next uh, workshop, San Francisco, the 30th of, the, of July, and most certainly uh, August, end of August in, uh, in LA, and then uh, September, Barcelona. I'm trying to make one a month. Oh, awesome. Well, hopefully and I'll I get to attend one in, of your classes. One, oh, yeah, please come. I'd love that, man. Oh, I would love it too. <laughs> I would definitely would like to come to one of your classes. I, I would be blown uh, away. Okay, you're on the waiting list, like LA or, uh, or SF, <laughs> this month All right. or next month. All right, sounds great, thank man. Thank you well, so much for what you do, man. I really thank you, Frenchie. It. You are you are a unique uh, and amazing person. I'm so happy that I got to meet you and, and had you on the show, and uh, we'll definitely be seeing more of each other and speaking, I'm sure, and we need to sit down for some a really good hash session together. Yes, please, some quality time. <laughs> All right, well, thanks again uh, for joining us, and uh, take care, my friend. All the best. Thank you so much. Wow. Well, all right, guys. What an amazing uh, interview. What amazing knowledge that that man has. Uh, I look forward to uh, spending some more time with him and picking his brain a little more and uh, just absorbing some of that amazing knowledge. You know, it's important to be aware of the history. Uh, obviously, we all have our dabs and stuff, but the history of hash is really cool and it's and it's worth exploring out there. So please, uh, there will be, there's links to uh, Frenchie's website and uh, some of the other stuff we spoke about on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash blazing with Bobby Black. Uh, please go check it out. Like our page. Uh, leave us some feedback if you like. We always love to hear from from all you Blackalites out there. Uh, and you can also follow me on social media, Twitter at Bobby Black, Instagram and Facebook at Bobby Black 420. Um, and uh, be come back uh, next week and for the rest of the month we're going to be having more hash uh, experts coming up in the coming weeks uh, we've got bubble man we've got Mila and we've got kind bill uh, from Colorado coming up later in the month so please tune in and talk up with us again next week here on hash month on blazon until then this is Bobby black saying blaze on The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited.